A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So Stanley Wells brings a lifetime of reflection to bear on some of the most tantalizing questions about Shakespeare in his latest book, What Was Shakespeare Really Like? What were his relationships like? What made him laugh? What did he believe about death? Shakespeare's elusive personality now comes to vibrant life. Read a sample at cambridge.org forward slash Shakespeare really like and use the code SHAKE20 at the checkout to save 20% on your copy. to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Hello, Lucy, in a heatwave. We're always moaning about how cold and wet it is, aren't we? And it's not. It's really not. It's really very much not cold and wet. And in fact, a bit of rain would be very grateful. How are you doing? We cannot be satisfied, can we? I'm fine. I was actually <laughs> really pleased about the nice weather because my niece got married at the weekend and did so in Tremendous sunshine. Quite a bad thing happened to me, though, I must say. I was going to ask you a leading question, but go oh, on. Go if on. Character, I was going to ask who you addressed as, which is a, <laughs> a mean leading question. It's like one of those things. It's sort of the Lord taketh with one hand and give away with another. But in reverse, on the downside, my naughty teenage relatives pointed out that in my red hat and deep blue dress I had come dressed as Paddington beautiful but I reported this on Twitter or X formerly known as Twitter and have gone viral so I'm like a young person who's gone viral I may go on TikTok next Lucy you never know well that would be wonderful I think you should go on TikTok and you should be raising your hat and showing the marmalade sandwich that you've got underneath it balanced carefully on your head shouldn't I just Also, what better wedding guest could there be than Paddington? I thought so. I thought I was looking really, really sort of rather charming. But actually, somebody else said to me, well, less Paddington, more Hyacinth Bouquet. And I thought this is going Mm. from bad to worse. But (laughs) never mind. As I did that, and while I was on my travels, I dropped in at the Queen's Park Book Festival. And I interviewed in her first interview for this book, Zadie Smith, about the fraud, which was tremendous. We almost say that the fraud is the book that she's just published not a fraud that she has perpetrated on. oh no that's right well yes great book and very interesting we were talking a bit about reading it last week weren't we very interesting because it invites you to consider who exactly the fraud is there's a very obvious fraud in the book but there are other versions of fraudulence too it was very good and you know the way you sometimes get famous guests it's always very exciting Mm. in the audience was none other than Bill Nye 
Wonderful. Did you point him out? Did you start squealing and going, look, look, there's Bill Nye, there's Bill Nye? I thought that would be really very, I shouldn't do that. But I was a bit abashed. I couldn't look at him. Oh, God. Very sorry. That's very, very good. What's going on with you? That's enough of me. Never mind me. What about the TLS? I hear you cry. It's one and the same thing. You're in the TLS this week. You've written in the TLS. I am. I keep forgetting about that. I have written in the TLS, but there's lots of other pieces which are very wonderful. There's a big, we've got a big lead on conspiracy theories and how they are now. They used to be a bit of a joke, not so much of a joke anymore, sadly. The piece by Nat Segnit, who's been on the podcast to absolute of friend of close friend of the podcast yeah totally and it includes a review of Naomi Klein's book Doppelganger which is about her tribulations in that area and then sort of to go with it there's a piece by Laura Kunin about witchcraft a history of witchcraft and the idea that witchcraft is still kind of reviled you know there's still women who stick out are still viewed in some ways as a problem. But on the other hand, it's also become quite cool, very cool, in fact, I think. And there's a wonderful piece about Larry McMurtry, who wrote Lonesome Dove, which I am I'm one of those people who bangs on about Lonesome Dove. Um, so there's a good piece about his life. And there's all sorts of stuff. Yes, and I reviewed uh, Good Omens 2. What is that? Good Omens was a book written by Neil Gaiman and, yes, Terry Pratchett. So you can have a quick snigger Alex unbelievable it was on I reviewed it four years ago when it came out on the tv show was made on Amazon Prime a rather grand and glitzy production which was pretty brilliant actually and then there's a good omens too and obviously sadly we can't have Terry Pratchett writing it with Neil Gaiman this time but he's got John Finnemore writing it who is a really wonderful comedy writer often heard on Radio 4 am I right Yes, exactly right. And he did the thing that for me is, is his most wonderful work is a sitcom set on a tiny airline called Cabin Pressure on Radio 4. And if you said that to me, in fact, I had heard it, I think. I had sort of turned it on and thought, oh, God, it's one of those sitcoms, you know, and immediately turned mm. it off. What just shows you, don't judge a book by its cover, the audio version of that, because it's actually an absolutely brilliant, beautiful piece of work. So I wanted to look at Good Omens too to see what he'd done with it. But if you want to know what I think, Alex, you're going to have to buy the TLS. Well, obviously. (laughs) That's not true. I've just told you what I think. Actually, I haven't told you what I think of the telly. Yes, do read the TLS and find out. All I'm saying about the Pratchett connection is I hope you're on residuals, my friend. If I was on residuals, I would never work a day again in my life. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, I do this for pleasure. I don't do any of it for money. Now, we are going to welcome someone else in who's in the paper at this very point, aren't we? Yes, we are. Yes, because my esteemed colleague, Lily Hurd, has got a piece in the fiction pages and she's going to talk about it with us. Hello, Lily. Hello. Nice to be here. Well, very nice of you to come along. I believe you're sitting in a stifling glass booth in the middle of of News UK's busiest office. Is that true? Something like that. Yeah. Yes. You sound very calm. Tell us about the book that you reviewed this week. So it's called, I think it must be called Chimera which is not how I'd been pronouncing it in my head, but it's by Alice Thompson. And it's a kind of sci-fi meets Greek myths novel, which is fantastic. The premise is that there's a crew of humans and artificial intelligence machines that have been sent out to find bacteria that will help reverse the effects of climate change. But more to the point, it's this study of dreams and the science of dreams and what people believe in. I have to say a mix of science fiction and Greek myths sounds right up my alley. 
it's covering all your bases. There, <laughs> it's covering it, some really? of them. Some of yeah. them. Yeah. Um, and did you like it, Lily? Yeah, I thought it was brilliant. I really liked it. It had this feeling that being on this planet, looking out to space is exactly what being in ancient Greece, looking out to space was like. And I think it was really clever how she brought that across. Mm. Sold. Mm. Well, Lily, thanks for telling us about it. We wanted to hear about that, but we also wanted to welcome you to the podcast and to introduce you to our listeners because you're going to be joining us a bit more frequently, we hope, in future. And you've got a real strong interest in audio stuff, haven't you? Tell us about it. Yeah, so I had student radio shows all the way through university, which were in both cases music shows, and it was just fantastic. It was like totally kind of freeing to sit in an audio booth on your own and record it and play whatever you wanted, which I suspect is maybe not what happens in real music radio and it was a bit like putting together an essay or a playlist out of songs that no one else had any control over and I just really really loved it the whole experience was great so if you'll have me back I would love to come back we'd really love to we love to enlarge the podcast family at all opportunities we do and what I'm hearing Lily is that you're a control freak and you'd like nothing better than to sit there and move us around like you know pawns in a game which is fine absolutely fine by me Fine by me. Let's see. Yeah, let's see what happens. Moving along, I am going to tell everybody that on this week's show, Mary Beard and two former TLS editors on Caesars and Strong Men. And Anne Enright joins us to talk about her new novel, The Wren, The Wren. Now, earlier this summer, the TLS held an event with our own Mary Beard and our former editors, Ferdinand Mount and Peter Stothard. All three have books already out or just coming out, and all three deal, at least in some way, with Caesars, or how the idea of them has persisted through to the modern world. And now we're able to bring you a snippet of what they talked about, so you can have a taste of it. So here's Mary talking about how she started at the TLS, incidentally, and also nominating a candidate for the first tweet ever. Oh, thank you very much, Martin, for that introduction, and we're terribly pleased to be here. Um, it's... A um, particular pleasure for me because um, these two guys here taught me more about writing for the intelligent general public than anybody ever has. Uh, Ferdy actually um, rather bravely, when I had no qualifications for the job at all, um, let me be classics editor of the TLS. Um, Peter came a bit later and was a classicist and was very, very tough about how classicists should get their message out. And we're here tonight because we all have got our message out recently, we hope successfully, and we're celebrating uh, and talking about three um, books, one written by each of us, there's Ferdy's Big Caesars and Little Caesars, How They Rise and How They Fall, from Julius Caesar to Boris Johnson, Right. And we will be hearing more about Boris Johnson later, but we mustn't let him dominate, as he so often does. <laughs> um, Peter's uh, um, book came out in April. Ferdy's is only just out. Um, uh, Palatine, an alternative history of the Caesars. We'll be hearing more about that later. And not yet out, though I'm the proud possessor of an advanced copy, um, a book by me called Emperor of Rome, and it's out at the end of September. I wanted to start with Ferdy and his book, Big Caesars and Little Caesars, um, which takes the idea of 
the Roman emperor or the Roman proto-emperor, but looks at its history all the way through to our last prime minister, but two. Is it two? Yes. Um, and what I want you to do, Ferdy, is just to say, give us a kind of brief summation of what the argument is in a couple of minutes. Well, thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Mary. It's lo lovely to be here in this magnificent space. And um, I'm really a, a magpie in this nest of singing birds because I'm surrounded by scholars and I'm a, a journalist who just picks up trifles and tries to make a pattern out of them. And what drove me to embark on this thing is the thing that we see all around us, like the tower blocks here, we see strong men, either in power or just having been toppled or waiting to get in. Um, and um, this is an extraordinary sight because we were taught only 30 years ago by Francis Fukuyama <coughs> that um, uh, liberal democracy was here to stay. It was bound to conquer everywhere, not immediately, but in the end, it would win out everywhere. And that uh, dictatorships or uh, strongmen or whatever you want to call them uh, were a thing of the past. And I call that the comforting illusion because if you look back through history, again and again, constitutional regimes have been destroyed by strongmen of one sort or another. But the illusion isn't a new one because you remember Karl Marx said, um, history repeats itself only um, the first time as tragedy and the second time as as fast. And you probably also remember that he was referring to Louis Napoleon's coup in 1852. And Marx thought that Louis Napoleon was a sort of mountebank, chancer, complete uh, nobody who had no chance of uh, success. Couldn't have been wronger. He locked up the judges, he locked up the MPs, he had about half, half, 500 people murdered, and he reigned actually, as it happened, for rather longer than his revered uncle, uh, 22 years. So Marx was wrong about that. He thought Caesarism was dead. And I think to see why it isn't, you need to go back through the famous Caesars in our history, uh, um, back through uh, Napoleon and Cromwell, um, and back to the original Caesars. And so that's the the project, if you like, and um, what I set out to do is to try and show how the, the Caesars may look different, but uh, they use the same techniques, the same tricks to, to win power, to win public attention, and to stay in power. And um, so that's, that's what it's all about. Whether or not it convinces you, um, I, I, um, I hope to... Uh, um, have a go at, but um, but that's that's what it's about. I mean, in, in part, it convinced me. I mean, I think that um, reading this and reading your kind of survey of autocrats, would-be autocrats, semi-autocrats from Julius Caesar. The, the rest of the Roman emperors don't get much of a look in. To be fair, it's Julius Caesar, and then we're on to the sort of early modern world. But it. it it picks out some brilliantly um, similar techniques, 
So and I, what struck me, because I tried to talk about this before, but you do it better. Um, the idea that what the Caesarian autocrat does, going back to Julius Caesar, is he manages to communicate with the people outside and around the back of the standard official mechanisms. Now, um, the classic example of that recently would be Boris Johnson. No, no, sorry, shouldn't mention him. Donald Trump. <laughs> but, you know, doesn't matter. Uh, Donald Trump's tweets. You know, uh, you know, a president made by social media. And it's there is a kind of awfully uncomfortable similarity between Trump's tweets and Caesar's direct communication, first century BC, with the Roman people. I mean, everybody knows the slogan, veni, vidi, vici. You know, yeah. I came, I yeah. saw, I conquered. But in some ways, that is the first tweet that there ever has been. It was displayed in public. It wasn't mediated through official channels. And some people even think that Caesar's commentaries, you know, the slightly dull texts that some people were forced to read at school. Um, Caesar's commentaries about his victories in Gaul were actually t basically tweeted. You know, people on the street corners in Rome read that out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there is that very nice um, uh, sense of uh, what a Caesar does and has always done and still does is, is bypass the official channels of communication. And, I, and you do that brilliantly. I, I then found myself thinking, wow, that's you know, spot on. But when you really think about Caesarism, and I wondered, you know, what was, you know, aren't there more things that are completely different about Julius Caesar and Trump or Johnson or Cromwell than are similar? You know, you can pick out some good analogies and some good similarities, but aren't we in a completely different world with Julius Caesar? Well, um, let's take uh, the, one of the first things that Julius Caesar did after crossing the Rubicon. When he got to Rome, he thought to himself, I need cash to prosecute my war against Pompey. He marched into the Aerarium, the treasury, uh, in the Temple of Saturn in the Forum, and uh, he said, open up, I need the cash. And a little man, a tribune of the plebs called Lucius Metellus, uh, whom history has completely forgotten, uh, said, I'm afraid not, sir. Um, this is forbidden by law. This treasury is reserved for funds to fight off the Gauls who haven't invaded us for 200 years. Julius says, forget that. I've dealt with the Gauls, uh, as, as shown in his commentaries, uh, which, as Mary says, are modern scholars increasingly dubious of saying, how much truth is there really in this? So we were taught by our schoolmasters that these were models of truthfulness <laughs> and everything like that. Uh, but actually, this uh, man who was with Caesar at the crossing of the Rubicon, um, Gaius Asinius Pollio, said, well, actually, he made a lot of it up. And so he said that at the time, but such was the reputation of Caesar that um, he got away with it. Um, and anyway, he, this um, little man, Lucius Metellus, went on saying, no, no. Um, and um, Caesar said, get out of my way. Um, I, this, um, I, I don't pay any attention to you. 
um, and if you don't move, I'll kill you. Uh, so he did move, and uh, Caesar got this huge amount of gold and silver bullion and cestercii, which he took and prosecuted his war with Pompey, which brought such misery to millions of people. <clears throat> but you look at Caesar's commentary on the Civil War, and it says, um, uh, I, I did go to the Senate, and I was... Um, had a certain amount of embarrassment from this man, Metellus, who'd been uh, suborned by my enemies. So I moved off uh, and went on uh, to other things. No mention of this huge treasure which he's gathered. So, I mean, you get lying, plunder. Um, this, if you want a modern analogy, we're not going to go get on the Boris yet. Um, uh, well, Donald Trump raiding the US treasury, treasury for funds, billions of dollars, to build his um, Mexican wall. And all his advisors said, no, sir, you can't do that. Um, uh, the Congress has specifically not voted you the money for that. Trump said, no, I can't forget it. He passed an emergency resolution, um, and which was contested in the courts very honorably, and in the end <coughs> was um, repealed by Joe Biden, so it never happened. But so, I, that my contention is you can find the same patterns of behavior cropping up in all sorts of apparently very different Caesars. So Caesar started it, modern Caesars go on with it, and it's about populist communication, it's about the control of money beyond what you should have. But do you buy this, Peter? <laughs> hmm. Well, <laughs> It's good fun. It's always possible to find the things that are uh, uh, link that look as though they link the present and the past, and without um, and ignore all the things that that, that don't. So uh, I think what uh, I think at least what Mary and I try to do is is to sort of walk along a sort of tightrope here, because you, you you're walking you're walking over the ancient world, and you look down on one side, and it's people raiding the aerarium and. Uh, falling in love and eating and drinking and doing all the things they seem like us. And then you look down on the other side and they are absolutely, their fundamental assumptions about the world and about their, about their lives are just completely different. They have totally different idea of the future. They have totally different ideas of freedom. They have totally different ideas of, of how men and women should, should work. And you, um, the only thing that makes me uncomfortable about these, par these parallels is that I always I tend to see more of the utter alien nature of the ancient world than the, um, the, the, the common factors. However, it doesn't alter the fact that the ancient world is part of our political education, not least the political leaders themselves. And so um, since a lot of our political leaders have been brought up on uh, what Julius Caesar said, Julius Caesar did. Um, you can't be surprised if sometimes that, that has a, a kind of Im, Im, a, an impact on them. But look, one of the problems here seems to me is, you know, absolutely fundamentally, uh, I, many of these guys, modern guys, have reinvented themselves and in the, the model of Caesar, which they themselves have invented in part. But most of the later Caesars that you talk about, Ferdi, there is some sense that they have a policy, right? Now, you know about policy, because as Martin reminded us, he worked in the policy unit. Now, uh, you know, Cromwell has a kind of 
an idea of what he wants to get done. Um, so does Johnson, so does Trump, you know, so does any of the intermediaries. They, you know, the, what goes along with being a Caesar is an agenda. Now, my problem is that I think that the, our original Caesar didn't have necessarily, we, we like to imagine he did, but I'm not sure he had an agenda at all, oh, no. apart, apart from um, saving his own skin, which he dramatically failed to do, um, and, uh, and getting his own way. Well, I think there's a powerful, this is a very powerful agenda in itself, uh, saving your own skin and um, getting, your own getting your own way. Uh, and um, I think, you know, take some later, uh, I call Caesars, like uh, uh, Cromwell, for example. I mean, his thing, you remember his famous um, smashing up the rump parliament, but what we sometimes forget is he smashed up um, five parliaments after that. Um, uh, he's a champion parliament smasher, uh, leaving Napoleon with a mere three and Lenin with two at the post. Um, and he just, he, all right, he had an, ag uh, uh, an agenda of religious liberty for those whose religion agreed with him. Yeah, sure. But he was principally concerned to get his own way and to overrule the elected um, majorities in those parliaments. And the same is true of Napoleon. So I think this sort of method is, <coughs> is central. Um, and um, the fact that they didn't have a sort of, you know, manifesto in the modern sense, I, I think is secondary to the, the will to power and, and the unscrupulousness with which uh, they are ready to pursue that, that, uh, that path. But they had a totally different view of the future. Of the, I mean, in order to have a policy, and you have to have some idea that you're, you're going to get from X to Y. Certainly in the, in the ancient world, people's ability or sense of planning for the future and having a... a a foreign policy or a domestic policy, certainly any kind of economic policy, was just not there. Now, there's no point, and we can argue the nuts and bolts of that, but the most important thing was that they were not, I mean, it is all on the back of it. You know, now you criticise um, advisors in Downing Street or in the White House for sort of doing everything off the back of an envelope, and that's considered that thing. But they didn't even have an envelope. I mean, um, they, no. they, they, they were, it was absolutely... And that wasn't just because they were incompetent. It's because they had no sense. Their sense of, 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 of what you might plan to do was just totally different from ours. And for instance, you know, that Rome, every country, every, you know, would have had an income stream going on. You know, people knew they were going to get taxes. You ought to have been able to borrow cheap money on the basis of a future income stream. And that's, you know, but they didn't do that because they didn't under, understand that that was something that you could do. All, my, all lending was very short term. Interest rates were spectacularly high. Um, so that's what I mean about all the, 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 the very different um, things that, are, that, that underpin uh, what seemed to be sort of uh, similarities on the surface. I mean, Peter's putting a bit cruelly, I think. Um, but I, I, I do agree that the further you go back in, in Ferdy's list of Caesars, the weirder they become. And you have to do an awful lot of effort to make them seem the same the further back you go. I mean, it, I mean it's partly... I don't think it's that the poor old ancients didn't understand the future, which makes them seem as if they haven't kind of quite twigged it. 
um, what they didn't see their place in the world, and Caesar was just one of them, as uh, as as an obligation to make the world different in the future. Um, I mean, basically, every ancient looks back. Every um, politician in the ancient world is looking behind him, not looking in front. Yeah, you can make up the past, which they did very, very well. Up, yeah. You can enjoy the present, which they eventually, which they learned. The philosophers are very key, key, you know, keen on that. And the future was just... Um, a complete sort of fuzz. Even even tomorrow was a complete fuzz, which is which is yeah. and, and which is why they say such strange things about it. We, we get. Yeah. I mean, we, we we may get to, to, to talk about um, uh, Seneca and Claudius, for instance, which we, I don't. We'll get onto that. But if, you know, some of the things that Seneca, when he was in exile, philosopher, Roman philosopher, Roman, Roman, philo- Roman, Roman philosopher, uh, fell out with Claud- with Claudius's wife uh, Messalina and was. Uh, and was ch- chopped off, off to Corsica. He wrote stuff to the emperor, which is the only most important thing about being an emperor, if you got letters and then you responded to them. He tried to get uh, himself out of, out of Corsica. And the things he said were all about, they were about the future. They were all about how Claudius was the son, Claudius was the savior of the world, Claudius was the, uh, was, was the, the sort of the planets and the, hev- and, the, and the heavens. It wasn't that they didn't have a, they kind of they had a kind of language that you would rapidly recognise in early Christianity about you know what, what, what sort of future states, but they didn't understand the future as we as, as we well, plan. Do, we, would do we understand the future? I mean, a great deal of uh, the arg- political argument in this country for the past six, seven, eight years has been about recapturing a past <laughs> of total sovereignty in yes. which uh, we were completely yes. independent of all. Um, ties and obligations and treaties, and we, we prospered, and we were truly British then. Now, whether or not you warm to that nostalgic picture, it is undoubtedly a, a picture of the past, and I think modern politics has been constantly reinventing the past. Uh, the Israeli was looking back to the, uh, the glorious Middle Ages when everyone was fraternal and living. So I don't think that distinction is, is, is sort of overwhelming. And also what I would like to throw into the argument here is um, looking back from the, the empire to the republic to a very structured form of politics in which people <coughs> climb the ladder from edile to praetor to um, tribune and to consul and there were elections, very complicated elections, often rigged, of course, as elections often are. But there was a very complex structure in place, um, which didn't always produce great results, although it did. It was the period in which Rome's empire expanded to its greatest extent. And um, suddenly, without that structure, without that feeling that um, you have constitute not only a constitution, but a political uh, structure, you have some rather chaotic results. Peter's book has marvelous descriptions of the year of the four emperors, when people turned up as emperor emperor in all sorts of places. You happened to be in Cologne, you suddenly emperor, and then you happened to have an army in Rome, and then was Vespasian coming in from the east. It's all 
completely chaos, unpredictable. No one knew from one minute to the next. There was no law of succession or anything. Um, and, Is it familiar? What? Is it a familiar situation? And, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, last year, I, I seem to remember, was the year uh, of the three prime ministers. So um, we, we've, we've had a bit of that. Um, and that was <coughs> very largely, again, whatever you think of the tendencies within the Conservative Party, that was very largely a breakdown of any consensus and authority within that party. That was Mary Beard, Ferdinand Mount and Peter Stothard. And we'll be talking to Mary in the next few weeks about her new book, Emperor of Rome, which will be out at the end of the month. to come on the show, Anne Enright talks about her new novel, The Wren, The Wren. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free, wherever you normally get your podcasts, and you'll never miss an episode. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark. Anne Enright might be said to specialise in family disharmony and particularly the strange dynamics that play out between the generations. In novels from the Booker Prize winning The Gathering to her most recent actress, she shines a light on what happens between the lines. For her new book, The Wren, The Wren, she decided to explore the emotional legacy of a famous Irish poet, a fictional one, naturally, which meant that alongside prose, she had to write his poetry. We're thrilled that she can join us to explain more. Hi, Anne. Welcome. I'm not going to explain a thing. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be a short interview then, Anne. Yeah, no explanations. <laughs> Hush now, don't explain. Anne and I met a couple of weeks ago so that I could interview her for a newspaper interview here in Ireland. And I'd say after about half an hour, Anne just sort of took pity on me or was putting me straight, whichever way that you might want to look at it, and said, 
you're not supposed to understand everything that happens in this book because I've been sort of quizzing you on details in a frankly impertinent way, Anne. No, no, not at all, Alex. But it's actually what the reader's supposed to be doing themselves it's to go, oh, yeah. So you don't want to intrude on the reader's, oh, oh, yeah, that's just like that over there. So that some of the connections emerge by surprise. Actually, in the writing, I was surprised by some of the things that was happening. Or I was told that, you know, my husband, Martin, said, that's, you know, what she did there is just like what her father did. Mm. I love that. He said, I love that it, she's just like Phil when she does, she abandons somebody. And I thought, oh, my God. I did not know. Oh, really? When you were writing it, that wasn't Yeah, there. yeah. So you look at things and you, you wait for the patterns to rise to the surface and then you brighten them up a little bit. But you don't put a bow on it and hand it over to the, you just, you let the reader, it's a more ruminative sort of kind of reading or a more thoughtful meditative kind of reading. You let them, you let them join up the dots. Yes, that's exactly my experience of reading this book where I was just thinking, but why, but how, but who? And, you know, Phil, you mentioned there, this is the poet that I, I mentioned in the introduction. I mean, he's one of the characters, although he's kind of off stage for a lot of it because he's died. You know, this is a generational novel. But you were interested, I thought, in writing about fame in Actress, as the title suggests. I wondered whether you felt you had more to say and whether that led you towards inventing this poet, Phil McDara. Yeah, well, actually, in both cases, you're dealing not just with fame and its extra kind of charisma, which is useful when you're talking about parents. <laughs> mm. You're interested in what makes them mysterious and amazing. So fame is a kind of shortcut for mysterious and amazing or iconic or whatever it is that that child looks in actress. Nora looks at her mother and sees what the world sees, this kind of amazing object. So, yes, I was interested in that instance in fame in itself, what the glow is and that moment of glamour and melancholy and, and loss. I think it kind of contains a kind of loss, that iteration of famousness. But this time around, I suppose there are two differences. One is that Phil has a reputation. He's not entirely famous. When he dies, his daughter wants to go up to one of the president's representative who comes to the funeral and ask this guy in military uniform, you know, did he think that her father was any good as a poet? <laughs> just this odd transgressive impulse because none of her friends think he's any good. They just think he's an example of something. So mm. the poet had to sit within a political and social context, a historical context, and be good enough to be knowable and, you know, admired. Phil is 15 years older than Longley and Heaney, so he came of age before the great flowering of Northern Irish poets. So he's a different kind of poet. Anyway, but draws from many of the same sources as they would do subsequently. So, yeah, reputation. Reputation is, is, is always comical because it dates. Absolutely. And you can always see the both sides of it. If there's reputation, there's also loss of reputation and, um, yeah. you know, the, the, the underside of it. But it's really interesting. I mean, that thought of things coming to you as you ruminate on a novel, I guess that's it. I mean, for children, their parents are always famous, aren't they? When you're a child, your parent is famous in your life. Yeah, in their own lunchtime or at breakfast. Well, a child is also famous to itself, you know. So yes. these are issues of, I suppose, circumference or narcissism or... I don't use the word narcissism. It's like it's too much thrown around and it's too 
poorly used actually often enough so and i think we need many many different kinds of words for what i'm describing here the kind of slightly self-enclosed feeling of grandiosity or i don't know one of the descriptions of phil at some point says he has a self-important heart which she, seems like yeah. a very yeah. telling <laughs> a very telling thing to say about him yeah, that's his daughter, Carmel, who's, yeah. who's a tough minded person who has no imagination and doesn't want to have any imagination because clearly it gets you into a lot of kind of not difficulties, but fraudulencies. Um, she kind of sticks to the truth or, yeah, she sticks to the truth. That's one of the lines as well. But I was asked whether Phil was a typical narcissistic male artist. And I, Carmel certainly would say so. She says he has a self-important heart, but actually he's like all artists he just feels that he needs to say, or must say something and he also feels that the world might be interested in reading it and for Carmel this is an astonishing claim on the world's attention she wouldn't dream of doing that so you could call it narcissism if you like but it is a distinctive thing to do I suppose but is there's also that gap as Alex says the gap between reputation and then maybe what the people nearer to you see because he's got a reputation as a kind of rather romantic a lover type figure and she sees how he is with her mother so she's pretty she's pretty clear right about that side of things isn't she they are opposites but they're part of the same thing opposite sides of the same coin I suppose mm. Mm. so they don't cancel each other out so he can I mean again and again the Irish tradition in poetry defaults to the lyric and is very intensely interested in nature and all those tropes recur so Phil captures in the poems one or other moment of emotion and usually high emotion or a flowering of emotion. It isn't untrue. It isn't false at the time. Hmm. It be true enough at the time or it carries that meaning for as long as the poem lasts for all those lines, that number of lines. <laughs> and then there it is, you know, while life goes on. Yes, and that life, you know, the day-to-day, -day, the mundane part of life is not immensely interesting to him, is it? Unless perhaps occasionally it can be satirised. We do not get this impression of him at all as a good family man. So I'm just defending Phil because <laughs> he's not insincere, okay? He's mm. not insincere. Now, I don't think sincerity is a moral quality, but <laughs> that's another... That's another thing. I mean, I think a lot of sincere people are kind of doesn't make them good. However, or you could even call it a kind of toxic sincerity, that if you're sincere, then that's all that's necessary. So you can be sincere about being horrible. Hmm. Ah, well, you, well, you can actually. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Can. You can be anguished. I mean, which is what Phil is. His wife gets sick. He loves her very much. She continues to love him, even though he leaves her. And he's anguished. His response is chaotic and difficult and, yeah, self-absorbed. He just can't handle it. But you wouldn't say that he abandons her because he doesn't love her. You would say he abandons her because he does. You're always so good, Anne, at those wrong-footing, tiny, tiny details and a bit that stuck with me in the moment that we see that he's leaving her as she's sick. She's lying in bed. He's looking for his watch in her sickbed and his two daughters are there. But that moment that he runs off to the bus stop, which is a typical moment of his leaving, you say, and he snatches up a buttonhole from someone else's garden to enrage the neighbours. And I thought, well, that's such a, an interesting detail because he's being a sort of 
showman in a way there. He's aware of the world looking at him and judging him, perhaps. And he just does something sort of flippant, really, and pleasurable and sensual at a moment yes. of terrible distress for everybody else. So he's very complex, isn't he? It is complex. He doesn't trust the buttonhole. That's what he does usually. So when he leaves the house on that occasion, they don't, all they can sense is the air coming through the door of the house to say that he, so they don't actually see him pluck a buttonhole. But that insouciance is part of the idea of being a poet. For him, it's just a man walking the road. It's about freedom. And art is often styled as being about freedom. And domesticity was in those days styled as being a trap. So yes, you couldn't be domestic and a poet at the same time. That was a contradiction in terms by the lights of the time and the mores of the time. Yes. Yeah, his work declines. He, he's, he has a few early books that are well received and then he gets married and his work declines he can't do it anymore it's getting in his way somehow and that that was like a truism for years for decades that you can't be free and in a relationship at the same time you can't be you know you can't be artistically or creative free creatively free if particularly you're burdened by by women or family i mean it's not true though is it this is the thing that we're you know, perhaps belatedly realising that there are many people who live a domestic life and create art, and many of those people are women. Well, I think one of the problems of the genius as the anti-bourgeois figure, you know, had to do with the rise of the middle class in the first instance. Yes, it's that idea that home is a kind of essentially a sort of conservative excluding of the world kind of thing something that you will yeah gather to you yeah so you know uh, victorian and edwardian england had its bohemia a space where people could actually have a lot of money and be sexually more mobile <laughs> then, <laughs> that's then, a nice way of putting it <laughs> then was allowed to the you know the family man because there are many of them men so genius was seen as something you know, all these words like inspired or demonic or, you know, all of these things are are almost religious and they're outside of, of those uh, more material kind of domestic class concerns. Mm. We needed these figures to be like prophets or to be to be separate from. From ordinary stuff or they felt it. so it's all a grandiosity, really, isn't it? Yeah. But it's social as well. So I think it's also socially determined. So the discovery that people had that they could for example, have children and also have books. That was new. I mean, that's quite recent, you know. Yeah, and as you say, it was discovering that women can do it too. Hey, women are allowed to do it. <laughs> it turns even out. Even more recent. Yeah. You know? yeah. You know, there was a generation of women like Doris Lessing who left their family because in order to create. And then slowly you kind of maybe compartmentalize. <laughs> Is that the word? Is that you say, no, that's that you can be free in your creativity without leaving your room. And where is your room? These are, does it have to be somewhere not in a bourgeois house? These are kind of false constrictions you're putting on yourself. Mm -hmm. Can I go back to something you said about the poetry and, and nature in it? I wanted to ask you about animals in the book because they feel very important. There's some very intense moments with them. And a lot of it, it's about how we kind of project things onto the animals and kind of what we do with them. But they're very meaningful points of contact. They're certainly meaningful for the humans anyway, aren't they? And right at the end, that kind of transcends. Yeah, I'd have to kind of look back and, and check on what you're saying, Lucy, because, yeah, one of the kind of things on my 
cork board was um, Blake's Adam Names the Animals. So at the end of the book, there is a renunciation of those names, you know, sort of handing the names back or letting the names fall away and letting the animals be themselves. I suppose in Phil's, the chapter about Phil, there is a very intense, there's a badger, there's a badger baiting thing, which is very intense and very brutal. And I'm trying to think what else. So there's all the birds. Well, a lot of birds. Yeah, a lot they of feel the beautiful like, they birds. Feel like yeah. Luck and freedom and beauty and the incidental. Yeah. And the dog who helps Nell. But there are dogs. Oh, there are dogs. Yes, thank you. <laughs> I'm so glad you saw the dog that helped Nell because, uh, yeah, somebody said, oh, she just goes off on her travels and that's what fixes her. But no, there's, first of all, there's a no. dog. Yes. Um, and I put that nice dog in because I had some terrible terrible figures of dogs in the early not the dogs are terrible I had terrible tragedies affecting dogs in the early I mean just awful I mean and I thought okay I need to balance out the dogs here you needed a redemptive dog moment I really did oh gosh Lucy you see the the dog I have to because I really feel I've read this novel closely and enormously admiringly and the dog has kind of passed me by but you Lucy are a dog owner I'm a dog owner and well I was really struck by all the use of animals actually but it's very lovely because when she goes there Nell goes to look after the dog doesn't she because she needs she needs somewhere to go Suki the golden doodle but at the beginning you don't know that she just says there's a big mass of hair and a pair of eyes and she goes and oddly the dog indifferent drag- friendly but oddly indifferent I don't know if I captured that thing. Some dogs, the way they look at you. Yeah, they're like, well, hi, but, you know, whatever. But then gradually the dog drags her out. She has to look after the dog. The dog puts her head on her knee. And then actually she realises that she loves her and she's helped her and she's brought her out. And now the dog has a name. The dog won't let her be alone. And the dog is a mood machine. Yeah. So when when she's crying, the dog licks the salty inside of her hand. I was pleased with all of this I have to say Suki the golden doodle I'm going back to read the dog parts I feel like a, I've, maybe it's because I have cats I don't know but I'm going to go back and, and really examine the dog parts but birds as you say are obviously huge I mean the wren the wren the title and the wren is is a folkloric bird in Irish culture a bird that actually betrays isn't it well, I didn't dig into it too much. I am, you know, in the Irish tradition and there are secret animals in all my books. <laughs> so there's a hare at the end of Actress. His little totemic animal is buried at the end of Actress. <laughs> and I think it goes back to the old money. The pennies had these beautiful... And the pennies also appear. There's a penny with a hen on the front. So when I was like five or six, you'd be given a penny to buy sweets and it had this hen. So there's a hen a hare, a salmon, a pig. These were very, very important to... So when you get the dogs and the pigs and the farm animals in the children's books, I also had that in my own childhood because my father grew up on a farm and we'd spent an amount of time there. But it's amazing how many animal references there are quite casually in Irish conversation. I'm feeling the PhDs massing as we speak, they'd be called things like Anne Enright's bestiary or something like that. You know, examination of, yeah. They're all very domestic. I wouldn't even notice that they're there. They are slightly magical. I mean, they, they can be slightly magical. Or the, the hair and actress is certainly, you know, my own little voodoo. 
but there, there are no snakes, as we know, there are no snakes in Ireland. So the badger was very important. I, I took uh, the impulse from that from a, a really terrible story by Patrick Boyle called Melis Vulgaris, which is the name for the badger. But these things of, I remember my father driving along the motorway and there was a dead badger on the side. And he said, ah, poor Brock, he said. And so that was like, he was acknowledging the, the dead animal on the side of the road mm, in mm. a very kind of, it came from somewhere I thought quite old. Well, it's also obviously links to the poetry uh, and the poetic tradition that you're talking about and that you write yourself in this book. And this is something that is new to this book from your previous novels. It contains Phil's poetry, which you have written. And that's a mixture of a sort of personal meditation and nature poetry, but also these very, very old Irish poems that are much translated by the great poets of Ireland. And you had to do them yourself. I wonder what that was like. Well, it was the best fun of any of anything I did. It was the best fun. Well, during lockdown, which is also a lockdown book, and I realise I haven't explained the Wren at all, but perhaps later. So during lockdown, I was reading poems in the 18th century Irish or medieval Irish, and two of them were about dead birds. A bird that died of thirst because the ice, a very famous poem called The Yellow Bittern. The ice froze the lake and he couldn't have a drink. And another lament for a lady's blackbird that had died. And it just came to me from such a distance over the centuries. There I was in 2020, in the spring of 2020. And these poets were mourning two tiny deaths. And the smallness of the deaths made them more moving. And I was amazed at their survival as pieces of text. and very moved by the poetry. So... There is a loveliness to the bardic tradition in Ireland. And I surprised myself by, by kind of knowing bits and pieces about it. Being a novelist, you don't have to be an expert. You can just pretend. So I, <laughs> I just had to apply my fake expertise to the 24 syllables of one poem or the lines of another poem. I, I truffled out a couple of interesting ones um, that hadn't been much translated. The Calendar of Birds, I quite like. Kathleen Jamie did a version, but nobody else did. But then I did a poem, which is the oldest poem in Ireland, and every Irish poet has done it. So, I mean, there I was. I was comparing, you know, Heaney to Derek Mahon to Kieran Carson, all the Northern poets, and going back to the poem, I was in, immensely cheeky. That is the poem with 24 syllables only. So you mm. don't have, it's not like you have a run-up to that, do you? I mean, you've got to, every every letter counts yeah. there. No, I didn't do it in 24 syllables. In some of the poetry, it was interesting to retain the kind of chewiness of the syllabic approach, the Irish approach. There's a lot of interweaving of syllables from line to line and a lot of compound or portmanteau words. So what you try and retain somehow is the impulse. I mean, it's, these are versions, they're not translations. But there are decisions you make that I think are in miniature fantastically good fun because they're important. So where you put, there's no title in the original of In Jane Beck, which is the Blackbird of Belfast Lock, according to some, of Lagan Lock, according to uh, others. So you're going to name the place and you're also going to reveal whether the bird is a blackbird in the title or not until the second last line, which is what I delayed it until. And that felt like good, good narrative fun. I'm going to use the word fun a lot. 
<laughs> pleasure. I mean, there was such there's a huge amount of pleasure in in all of it. And play, perhaps. Play, yeah. Yeah. I mean, do you think that poems like that and thinking, I mean, you mentioned the yellow bit in there, that's an ancient poem, but it goes right up to kind of occur in the work of, you know, a, a songwriter like Liam Clancy, for example, that these poems and fragments exist in Irish culture in a way that's kind of unusual. They're unusually present, I wonder. I don't know. You'd have to ask a Welshman, really, or a Welshwoman. <laughs> yes, yeah. Well, maybe I should say the, the Celtic identity, perhaps. I do not know. I do not know. I mean, how vivid is Chaucer for you? I mean, I think the Wife of Bath is still exists very strongly, possibly only for English students, but I don't know. Well, and also listeners to this podcast, because she is a frequent. We've talked about the Wife of Bath a lot, have we not, Lucy? We have, we have. We've talked about the great favourite here. You can buy Wife of Bath soap for okay. people at Christmas. <laughs> actually, I think the Wife of Bath, I don't think the words actually resonate in the culture particularly. I think the image maybe does. You know what I mean? Like, the, yeah, the figure of her. But I don't know. I don't think many people can can tell you any lines from it. I know, but I wouldn't get sad now because you do have like Shakespeare. Okay? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I'm not. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Good, good point. How much that is in everyday culture. I mean, he's he's been quoted all the time, everywhere. Yeah, 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 yeah. that's true. Yeah. There's a point you mentioned, I think, in your acknowledgements. That did you did you run after Paul Muldoon in an airport to ask him about the Yellow Bitten? <laughs> I know Paul from, from many years. When I was a student in UEA in 1986, he came and uh, he taught some poetry there before going to Princeton and staying in Princeton. So he didn't teach me, but he was very kind to the creative writing students and sort of took us out or fed us and generally was very hospitable and kind. So I know him for many decades. So there he was. We were both early for flights, both armed with many books. Mm. <laughs> So he was sitting at gate 410 or something. So we were chatting away and I just could not stop myself. I said, I have to show you this poem. Well, I mean, if somebody did that to me. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be like, can I finish my sandwich first? Yeah, well, and, he was uh... <laughs> basically a bit like, yes, I'm just a little bit like that. But um, and <laughs> afterwards I thought, if someone did that to me, they would be completely non grata, you know, like, here's my short story. I'm really, excuse me, I'm sorry. <laughs> We're just chatting. I tell you, it all goes on in Dublin Airport, Lucy. Mm, There's sorry. a poet at every gate. <laughs> it's, it's... <laughs> now, poetry obviously runs through this book, but it is also about these people, these two women in particular who are not poets. You, As you say, Carmel, Phil's daughter, Nell's mother, a single mother determinedly so, is distinguished for you by her lack of imagination. And Nell seems to sort of struggle somewhere between the two. She's wanting to make her way in the world, but she also has a kind of poetic soul, I think. Yes, absolutely. So these are the two other big presences in the novel, aren't they? So, yes. I mean, you wonder where Karma's lack of imagination comes from. I mean, she is the kind of woman who says you're making it up, okay? So we know that woman, it's usually a challenge to their nurturing that says that makes them say you're making it up. Okay. <laughs> that this difficulty is not a difficulty, it's in your head. So that kind of tough-minded streak is very present in Irish 
maternal culture anyway. And but Carmel's both more deliberate and more helpless to her own literalism. It's kind of partly the way her brain works, I think, that whatever happens when Phil left when she was 12 reinforced something that was already possible there, which was that she would just get on with stuff and she wasn't going to do any nonsense now. So she's very pragmatic, very effective. And as Nell says, very abiding. I mean, she, Nell is, is completely sure of the fact that her mother loves her completely. But as an opposite to aren't our parents the most glamorous creatures ever, Carmel is that version of your parents is the most boring person you ever met. And, and Nell <laughs> says it. How come I had such a, an interesting grandfather and such a stupid mother? Why is my mother so stupid? Why is she so dull and why is she boring me, you know, to bits? So, yeah. So that's Carmel. And Nell has then her own difficulties. Obviously, one of the things I did want to ask you about, because we've talked so much about the poetry, which is present everywhere in this book. But there's a lot of violence here, too, isn't there? There's a lot of familial violence, a lot. And some of it comes Not at a you. Lot. Not a lot. Well, all right. All right. Well, then maybe what I mean is. When it happens, it really happens. You know it's happened. Yeah. It is not in the, it takes centre stage and it takes your breath away. Okay. Yeah. Well, it is part of the tragedy of the book, for sure. One last thing about the poetry is I'm really intrigued as to how the poetry then filters into the prose and people say, oh, she's such a poetic writer because the writing isn't more or less poetic. The prose isn't more or less poetic than all my previous work, but somehow it brings the lyricism up and out for people, which is nice. Anyway, the violence, there are two things here. One is that people write, you know, about death and destruction, mayhem, war, speculative fiction, where the aliens come and kill everyone. They write gore, they write murder, they write all kinds of things. And no one says, oh, my God, you are so dark. I'm much more interested in the small cruelties. And people quite rightly say, my goodness, that is very dark because it doesn't feel made up. It feels close, you know. I'm also interested in feelings of intimacy and proximity between the reader and the text. So the violence in the book, if you look at it, and again, this wasn't absolutely deliberate. I'm just trying to be in the language of the time, the language that is most appropriate to the character's mindset and circumstances and character. And these, these things emerge. But for Phil, back in the day, he lives in an intensely violent place. I mean, a, a place of very targeted brutality as well as quite generalized violence, which is completely not noticed by the reader or by Phil. He describes his mother as going off to teach and her arms grew lean in, in the beating of children who are not her own. So he doesn't even take value what happens to him enough to describe it. So then when Phil grows up, and he is a chaotic person and he goes around the place hitting everybody when he, get, when he gets a bad review in the Irish Times or when Austin Clark, who is there at the top of the Irish Times review pages for years, declares something or other about the poets of Harland and, and Phil goes into a, a complete tiz or not a tiz. And, and the, for the children, this getting hit is also, they're also almost indifferent to it or they think if you get in the way, it's your fault. So that was very common in the Ireland of my youth. If the teacher hits you, you've done something wrong. So that was axiomatic. 
for children if something bad happened to them they, they must have been in the wrong place at the wrong time and they should learn from that and do better the next time so by the time we come to the present day and the incident the terrible incident of assault um, uh, that happens in an ordinary uh, domestic kitchen we both the characters and the reader experience it as a terrible terrible event and it's very small it's an amazing event and it's an amazing book it's resonating and now I've got to go back and find out more about the dog even though I've read it twice however I'm going back I want to do something very cheeky now and end by asking you about something that's nothing to do with this book and goes right back to one of your previous books The Green Road and it is a scene in The Green Road which has become absolutely celebrated and the scene is as you know many people will know, is the scene of a woman doing the big Christmas shop, a minute, detailed discussion of her going around the supermarket that culminates in her realising she's forgotten potatoes and contemplating digging them up from the side of the road. So little does she want to have to go back into the supermarket. And given everything that we've said about domesticity and about the traditions of what is and isn't written about, I wondered how you felt about that scene having become so beloved of people that we talk about it every Christmas now. I don't mind. I mean, I don't <laughs> mind. Don't be jealous of your own productions, I suppose. <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, the Christmas shop basically it, it takes a modernist impulse, which is, you know, if Kafka had children, what would it be like? If Kafka went into a supermarket, <laughs> what would it be like? Of course, Kafka would never go into a supermarket. That wouldn't be possible. So just to take that modernist impulse and apply it to the lives of women as, the, as they happen in quite an ordinary way. I read it every year before I go and do the Christmas shop. Actually, what she needed was a list, okay? It would have gone through <laughs> list. It's a cautionary was, tale. <laughs> yes, if I was writing it again, I might, you know, work it aisle by aisle. <laughs> <laughs> no, you'd lose Absolutely the fantastic chaos. The, the big joke, of course, is that I do not do the big food shop at Christmas. My husband does it, but I used to do the toys and the. I used to do all the. Oh, I did all the other family presents and um, you know extended family presents, and I just thought it's an astonishing amount of labour that I we didn't really notice growing up. Absolutely true. Well, there we are. I've brought us back to the supermarket, even as we have flown free of it previously, as we've been talking. And it was such a pleasure to talk to you about this wonderful book. Absolutely loved it. Thank you so much for joining us today. Lovely. Thanks. Being great to chat. Thank you. time for this week. Our thanks go to Lily Hurd, Mary Beard, Ferdinand Mount, Peter Stothard and Anne Enright. And thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Charlotte Pardy. We'll be back next week but for now from Lucy Dallas and from me Alex Clark. Goodbye. Bye.